right, I welcome you back to your seats. It is that time to get started here. And uh, if you're not careful, if you walk in the center there, you'll be in the sermon. I know you don't want to do that. So let's turn to Matthew 13 and pick up in the chapter of the parables. There are eight of them. We're on story number four and five, uh, somewhere uh, like that, right in the middle of it all. And so let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, we pray that as we once again make the focus of our time your word that you say is living and sharp like a two-edged sword that can cut deep into our souls into our hearts and change us make us different give us wisdom and healing and life you wield that scalpel the hands of the great physician with a great heart of love and great wisdom, you know, right where to place that scalpel. And so we pray that you would do your work, Father God. We're going to take a look at two parables that often have a different take. And we pray that this time would be encouraging, comforting, and you would build us up. In Jesus' name, amen. So last summer, I came a Cross an interesting story, uh, made national headlines. Maybe you saw it too about buried treasure being found in the Rocky Mountains. And so it was quite a little story uh, there. And uh, it, it started with a wealthy man who was retired as an art collector, and he was a bit on the eccentric side, and he decided to create a treasure hunt. He wanted to encourage people to get outdoors and enjoy uh, the uh, Rocky Mountains because those regions there are so beautiful. And he buried a chest, a bronze chest that weighed in itself 20 pounds, and he added 20 pounds of gold nuggets, coins, diamonds, sapphires, and emeralds. It was quite a stash and hid it somewhere there in the Rockies. And then he wrote this cryptic poem, 22 verses, offering some clues as to where it could be found, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border at 5,000 foot elevation. Well, yeah, good luck with that, right? So now before you go out to REI for a new pair of hiking shoes, uh, last year some dude figured it out and he found it in Wyoming and he hauled that 40 pound now chest home where he's enjoying his share of the fine. And uh, the reason I say his share is because I, I laughed when I read it is, is that he was promptly notified by the R IRS <laughs> that they had a share in it as well. And so, yes, it still comes out to a nice chunk of change. Uh, and so, yeah, well, everyone loves a story about buried treasure, even our Lord Jesus because he is going to include two little stories with that very theme on the search and the hunt, seeking valuable treasure. This morning, one man will discover it buried in a field and the other finds it inside an oyster called the Pearl of Great Price. And there's a catch, an interesting one. Uh, they have to do something to make the treasure their own. And so we're going to get going now 
and uh, go with Jesus on a treasure hunt and see what's up here with these two little parables, these stories, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, along the same lines, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Okay, so there you have the two parables that we are going to consider this morning. Two twin parables with a similar theme, really one story told two different ways, right? So someone comes upon something valuable like a treasure and then goes off and pays a hefty price in order to take possession. So the first task with parables, parable just means, as I've been saying, uh, a truth that comes alongside. That's what the word parable means. And it's really a way to compare things to make uh, you to understand a truth about salvation through an everyday example in life, like finding buried treasure, as it were. And so the first task of uh, when you read a parable is to identify the symbols in the story because they all mean something, right? That's the purpose of telling the story, not to entertain, but to teach something about your salvation, what God is like, what God is up to in the world and all of this. So the first question would be, who are the protagonists? Who are those two men, the starring men, the man in the field and the man on the seashore looking through the oysters? Who is that lead character, the treasure hunters? We've got to identify them, don't we? And number two, then what does the buried treasure and the pearl of great price stand for? And number three, we're going to have to figure out the significance of what both the man in the field and the pearl merchant have to do to make the treasure their own. What's the importance of that? So let me say right from the start, some of you have been in church many, many years. I'm going to present a perhaps new way of understanding this, these two parables. You've heard a lot of sermons uh, before in your life. And since I'm presenting a view that kind of differs from the usual way of understanding this, you're going to be finding me making a case for the better and more correct way to understand these two parables. <laughs> that was kind of a joke there. This is just kind of like, it's the right way to think about it. Well, it is. And so uh, these are well-loved verses, and you're about to love them more when you understand what they really mean. And so, okay, here's the traditional view, the view that I'm parting with today. The traditional view, let's start with the buried treasure. The ordinary sinner is that man who finds Christ buried treasure, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel. And then he must give up everything he has in order to obtain it. Hmm. If he wants the treasure, he's going to have to sell everything. Hmm. Something about that doesn't really sit well 
with me. All right. And so how about the pearl of great price? Same thing. A diligent, noble sinner who's searching for Christ, and voila, he finds him the pearl. But there's a cost. He's got to give up all his worldly ways, his sinful behaviors, his wrong attitudes. Everything is everything, and that's a big price. And only then can he get that pearl of Jesus and make that pearl his own possession. Well, I'm happy to tell you that that cannot be the case for a variety of reasons, and I will make the case before you. One time I was studying uh, before I had an office in a restaurant, and I had all my books around me with a cup of coffee and all of that, and the waitress came over and she said, oh, you're a lawyer. Well, I hope you win the case. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I am a pastor, but I still hope I win the case. <laughs> and uh, that is my hope this morning. I think you will find that it's fairly obvious. Uh, we are not the seekers. <laughs> we are not the one who makes the purchase for the great find. Uh, there is uh, a more doctrinally sound way of understanding both of them. And I think you'll agree after we are done here. And so once you figure out who the star in the story is, the rest of it will fall into place. So we begin with the man in the field and the merchant on the seashore going through those oysters. Who is the man and who, pray tell, is that merchant? Well, it can't be you and it cannot be me or any other lost sinner, no way. The lead role, first of all, in all of the parables is the father or the son. They are always doing the action. They are the initiators uh, of what's going on. And by the way, all eight parables in chapter 13 are told in one sitting. Okay, and so look at the context here. Uh, number one, he said, hey, there's a farmer who goes out to sow seed. And by the way, I'm the farmer. Okay, check. Number two, hey, there's this landowner who goes out to sow some good seed in his field. And by the way, I'm the landowner. And then by the time we get down to our story, we've already heard that he's the man and the field belongs to him. It's his field. And he told us the field stands for the world. So in the same conversation, we have the context or the contextualization of a reason why we have to give the starring role to Jesus. He is the man who is seeking something of value. And so that's the first clue. Christ is the seeker because it's in keeping with the flow of the context, but it gets better, okay? The second more obvious giveaway that it's not us, that it's Jesus, is because the sinner is seeking. Oh, really? Is that what we do? Sinners seek? Well, according to Paul and quoting the Psalms there in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Period. Now, right there, we could say game over because he just says in the Bible that 
people who are dead in their sins and powerless cannot seek God. The only thing sinners seek is how to gratify their own sinful natures. That's what we're good at seeking. And so one writer said, I think you know him, Pastor Ross Reinman, I said, people who have trouble finding their car keys or their sunglasses or their way out of the corn maze in Petaluma should not conclude that they had anything to do with finding the kingdom of heaven. And so I thought that was creative. Now, even Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It wasn't your idea. You didn't come looking for me. I came looking for you. I chose you. This is love, not that we first loved God, but God first loved us. He's the initiator. He's the one who's seeking. And even when we do kind of seek him, he's drawing us. So Jesus will say, no one can come to the Father, no one can come to me rather, unless the Father draws him. And so when we're seeking, we're truly just responding to his seeking, you see? And so uh, we go on here. If, if uh, the man really who's on the hunt for buried treasure beneath the earth or hidden under the sea is Christ, then the third giveaway here is just because it's in keeping with his nature, his heart, his mission. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to what? Seek and save that which is lost. Now let me give you the context for when Jesus said, you want to know what my mission statement is? You want to know why I came? I'll just tell you, I came to seek. I came to seek. I'm the seeker. I came to seek and save the lost, right? The context for those words is at Zacchaeus' house. You'll recall that Zacchaeus, the despised, wretched tax collector, was up a tree. He wanted to see Jesus. That's all. He just wanted to see him. And Jesus was passing by. Jesus gets to the spot and he stops and, he's, and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm coming over to your house for dinner tonight. And so at the end of that party, the townspeople are, quote, muttering that he went to be a guest in the home of a sinner. And that's when he says the famous words, hey, listen, actually, I came into this world to seek and to save the lost. So if we take Romans 3.11, no one seeks God, and combine it with Luke 19.10 that says, I came to seek and save the lost, then we find out that Christ is the one who's seeking and finds the treasure. Christ is the one who seeks and finds the pearl. And what is the great value to Jesus? It's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you and me, it's a human eternal soul which God created for himself but through sin and the devil's deception was lost and condemned and separated but loved by God nevertheless, hopelessly doomed. God sends his son to dig up the earth and look for treasure to scour the depths of the ocean to find that responsive soul, that responsive pearl of great price. And when he finds the treasure, then the real work begins. 
And this is what clinched it for me after 30 years of teaching it the other way. What clinched it for me this time was the fourth and final reason that Jesus is the treasure seeker and we are the treasure he seeks because of what comes next in both parables. You can't get around this. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just reading through the passage without reading commentaries, just reading over and over the stories, right? And I realized that the man cannot have the treasure. He cannot possess the treasure unless he coughs up the money. He doesn't get it until he goes away and sells all he has, and the word is to buy. He buys it. Now, when I started thinking about this, I started to get upset. Like, whoa, what have I been missing through the years? And I shared this. I came out for a break, and I saw Pastor Bond sitting at the table. And I'm like, dude, man, I think I've been missing something for years. I just have always taught that it's us looking for the something of value, and we stumble upon the, the pearl of great price, who's Jesus, and then we have to give up everything in order to get it. But I'm, I, I don't think that's working out here. And he said, why don't you check out what Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder, the well-respected teacher, you know, a man who I considered my pastor when he was alive, really. And so I checked out what he said. And here's what he wrote. And I quote, I've preached tremendous sermons on how the kingdom of heaven is so glorious. And when you discover it, you go out and sell everything to obtain the treasure. That was before I was pastoring for 30 years. I realized that interpretation has a serious flaw. I'm quoting, the doors of the kingdom of heaven are open freely to every man. You don't have to buy it. You can't buy it. It's a free gift of God. And so I just thought, wow, I'm glad that I came to the conclusion first and then was affirmed later by reading it there. And so, yes, a disciple yields his life, everything after he freely receives the pearl of great price. Of course, you would yield your life, everything you've got to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all of your strength. But it's a response in love. You certainly don't have to go and purchase and buy and wait till you hear what the word really means. And so, yeah. Uh, I smiled and I, I agree. After 30 years, it's so funny because it's been 30 years for me as well. And some things you only realize in age as you kind of slug it out in the trenches of the Christian life. And then in your senior years, you really come to know the huge extent of your total depravity, your emptiness, your brokenness, your terrible sin your helplessness and hopelessness. That's what you learn and how wonderful and how God is everything and he is overabundant with his rich mercies. I am nothing. 
He is everything. So let's unpack this, what he does to obtain the treasure. I think you'll be encouraged in both stories if he wants the valuable. And here we're winding down now with this dramatic truth. He must buy the field and he must purchase the oyster and it's a steep price. They're not for sale. They're not on sale, I should say, really. And, you know, that should be of some truth to anybody the Bible calls a, a uh, debtor. We are debtors. Oh, why would Jesus say, oh, but blessed are the poor, for they cannot afford to pay for the great pearl. Why would he say, Blessed is the poor. Blessed are the poor because they don't have to come up with any money. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor. The poor. They don't have anything to give. So you'll recall Isaiah 51 from cover to cover. It's pretty obvious. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine, the symbol for joy. Come and buy milk, the symbol for everything you need. Without money and without cost, Isaiah 55 and verse 1. A double emphasis here. Come to me, God is speaking. You who have no money, you need the, these things, but they're available to you without money, without cost. You see? And then cover to cover, right there, the last thing in Revelation we read in chapter 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, Jesus speaking, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the waters of life, free gift. It's a free gift. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Believe and receive is the good news. Without money, without cost, free of charge. It's a gift. And so it does get better. Thank you for that one amen. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So the only payment that's made in the salvation exchange is the one Christ makes. And it's in keeping with the story. It is indeed a high price. He has to pay everything to get that treasure. I'll say. And 1 Corinthians 6.20. Listen to this. You were bought with a price. We were bought with a price. And now we are owned by him who paid something for us. So that man had to spend everything, his last penny, right? The God man is the one who came down from heaven, who had the most to lose and gave it all away, right? He said he came to pay a ransom, Mark 10, 45. Not to be served, but to serve and give himself as that ransom payment, right? And so that's another dead giveaway, right? So we notice here that he finds the treasure and check this out. He discovers the pearl and then he goes away to make the payment. He finds the treasure, he leaves it there and he says, oh, I want this treasure, but there's something I have to do to make it my own. 
I have to come up with the funds to purchase. And the word means to redeem. I've got to redeem this. So I go away to make the payment. Then he comes back and says, you're mine now. This is in keeping with the gospel. And so I wonder where the man says he goes. Where does he go? Well, he goes to a hill called Golgotha. That's where the man in the first parable goes. And the man has to go somewhere in the second parable to make the payment. He goes to the hill called Calvary, a Roman tribunal on Good Friday morning where crimes can be paid for and sins atoned for. If you go and pay for somebody, somebody else's way, that's called to redeem them. You see, that's exactly what the word means. And really, yeah, it cost him everything. It cost him what? It cost Jesus is the son of God. He is co-eternal with God in every way. It cost him his dignity. It cost him his temporary stepping down from his throne. It cost him his divinity, though he never stopped being God. He certainly laid down the right and the advantage of being God, as Philippians 2 says, taking on the form of a servant to make a payment, right? It cost him his relationship with the father. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's making a payment. He wants the buried treasure. He wants that pearl. And he has to pay everything down to his last drop of blood. This is the way he's going to do it, my friends. He must redeem that field first. And this is beautiful. A classic example now of the law of redemption. In the book of Ruth, you'll find Boaz. Boaz has found something precious in his field. Follow the story. So he goes to his brother's family property has become up for grabs. It's been sold. It's coming up for redemption. So Boaz says, you're the guy. And the relative says, sure, I'll take it. And then Boaz says, here's the catch. Whoever buys the field acquires Ruth, the Moabitess, as his wife. And the relative says, yikes, my, wife's, my wife wouldn't be cool with that. <laughs> It's all yours. So Boaz buys the field, not because he wants another field, but because he's in love with Ruth and he buys the field to get his bride. Sound familiar? That's what Jesus went off to do, to sell everything, to redeem the field, which is the world, so that he could take the treasure for himself. I mean, there's another illustration in the temptation of Christ, the last one. Number three, Jesus and the devil are duking it out at some mountaintop somewhere. And the devil has the nerve to say, all these kingdoms and their glory have been given to me. And if you bow and worship me, I'll give them to you because I can give them to anyone I please. He obtained them when at, he wrestled dominion of the earth away from Adam 
took it, and then it belonged to him. So Christ had to redeem the field, which stands for the world, by his own blood. Jesus didn't dispute anything the devil said except that he would redeem the world and purchase it with his own blood a different way than bowing the knee. And I love this about redeeming the pearl. There's always a distinction between the Jewish people who had a covenant with God and the rest of the nations, and the word is Gentile. Nations, Gentile, that's what it means. And so the Jewish thinking was is that there was a holy relationship for Israel, and maybe that stands the first guy who digs into the earth right there in Israel. That's it, that, that God bought Israel, and now any Jew can come to the Messiah and be plugged in. But what about the waters? The waters are outside of Israel, and where is that oyster? That oyster is a shellfish, and in Leviticus chapter 11, shelf, shellfish are not kosher, i.e. they're unclean. And so what he does is he goes into the world and digs deep into the muck and mire where oysters live. He cracks it open and cuts away the flesh and finds in there a valuable pearl of great price, which he brings up and out. So it stands alone, a gem for his own great possession. This is the story. And notice it's one pearl, one pearl. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, black and white, male and female. He went looking to redeem the world and make us one in the church age in himself. in himself. The pearl of great price is the church bought and paid for by the man, by the God man, by the pearl merchant, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to seek and save digging through the piles of manure in the fields of the farms. And what does he find underneath that? He found a treasure, a responsive soul that said, I'm dying in my sins. And yes, I hear you knocking. And yes, I open the door of my heart. I yield to your drawing and your knocking and your pursuing. Amen. I think that's what some of you actually did. And he's the one who goes scuba diving down deep, down deep past the muck and the mire. What did he have to do to find you? He came into a disco in the 70s to find me and my brother. And we walked out of that bar, born-again Christians, without the aid of any Christian speaking to us, but the Holy Spirit. I was born again on the sidewalk in front of that bar because he came down and was searching for something of value, the muck and mire and sin of this dirty, forsaken world. And he struck something, and there was a response. 
Now, what's the application? Well, number one, if you have great worth to God, you might have to do some rethinking about yourself and how you live. If that's how precious you are to God, and you are, then what does that say about your self-esteem, how you live? Uh, I'll tell you a quick story, and then we'll wrap up here. Uh, I was at Bible college, and uh, had this friend. Uh, there was this beautiful girl, right? Every, just the talk of all the men storms, right? But most guys thought that this girl was out of reach, and her nickname was Hollywood, all right? And one night, my friend gathered all of us around, and he says to all the guys in the dorm, he's like, get a load of this, Linda. Let's call her Linda, cuz. <laughs> Linda's best friend told me, my friend says, that she has a crush on me. The whole world, the whole room in unison said, shut up. <laughs> no way. But the friend said to me later, and I'll never forget it, how is that possible that someone like her would like someone like me he said, I'm going to have to rethink the way I see myself. What does it say about you that God Almighty would not spare his own son but give him up for you? And while he's languishing in death stripped and being tortured, he's thinking about you, making you his treasured possession. I don't know. I think that people who sense their value walk worthy, walk worthier than others who don't. The second thing I wrote down here is that people who realize the cost that Christ paid for them, they live more holy because he had to die for those sins. So why add another one he has to die for? The more you sin, the more that went on his shoulders, right? And when you realize your cost, you love more deeply and you serve more, more wholeheartedly. The last thing I have down here is, is that if you fully get what it means to belong to him because he buys you, if he bought you, he redeemed us, he owns us, then we are his responsibility. Therefore, if he would buy you at such a high cost, you must be extremely valuable. Therefore, I think he would take really good care of that which he paid for, for the crushing his own son so he could have you. Therefore, those who get that, they do not fear. They do not get easily panicked because they understand that I belong to him at a cost that demonstrates he will be careful to watch over me and to keep me in all of my ways. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful word and these two beautiful stories that show us our great worth. It's so humbling, so wonderful, God, to belong to you, to know the lengths you went to to make us your own. Let that change us, God. Let it take hold. It's the perfect time in this world to feel all of these things because they're true. 
and they will affect us and give us the boldness and the confidence we need. Now help us play the, these things over and over in our minds. Help us, Holy Spirit, not to lose sight of the truth that you are the one who is looking for us. You are the one who found us. You are the one who bought us. And you are the one who made this treasure your own. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.